We're in a series called uh, Questioning Christianity, and each week we're looking at a particular uh, problem that many people have with the Christian faith. And today we're going to look at uh, the topic, like I said, of God's judgment and wrath. We're going to look at Judgment Day. And uh, one of the deep misgivings that people today have about Christianity is the concept that God judges people and sends them to hell. And the question uh, usually is posed like this. Uh, if, if, if there is a God, I believe in a God of love, not in a God of wrath, that you see especially in the Old Testament and, and, and in a God who judges. If, if there is a God, he's not a God of wrath, he's a God of love. That's the God I believe in. That's the God that I think is true, if there, is, if, if there is, even is a God. And this idea of God's wrath and judgment, that is just incompatible with the God who cares and loves the world. I remember uh, years ago when I was in high school, there was a, a teacher I had, an English teacher, and he had us uh, read this famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it was such a vivid uh, sermon where uh, God was uh, literally pictured by Edwards of dangling people over the flames of hell. And I remember I hated that sermon. And uh, probably, I would say, most everybody in the class hated the sermon. And I think 20th century people are almost allergic to the idea of a God who judges. And it, and it is a problem, isn't it? I mean, how can we believe in a God who's loving and gracious and caring and also in a God like Jonathan Edwards presented, a God who, who holds people over the flames of hell, the idea of a God who judges. And isn't it dangerous to believe in a God who judges like this? And there, you know, really, it's a personal issue because I know that a lot of us grew up in churches where God was nothing but the judge. You know, a, a God who always said no to your deepest desires, a God who grades you, a God who's angry at sin, a God who's nothing but the judge. And if you grew up with a God like this, uh, you know, you may have been a dutiful child, but you found it very difficult to love a God that acts in such a way. And maybe, uh, therefore, you process disappointment as God's disappointment with you. And doesn't a God who, who judges people and smites people, doesn't that create followers who want to judge and smite people. I remember there's a particular uh, Simpsons episode where Marge, Marge, you know, Marge Simpson was uh, a very, she's an evangelical Christian, and she went off to a Christian conference to, quote, learn how to be more judgmental. And doesn't a God who smites uh, give permission to followers to smite people and to be judgmental towards people? How do we believe in a God of love who is also a God who judges? That's the question we're going to look at today. And uh, what I want to do is I want to go to a passage uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is a passage about Judgment Day. Uh, this is a passage where Paul, it's one of the clearest passages in the Bible about the God who judges, about the God of wrath who judges at the end of the world. And what I want you to see in this passage is that when Paul pictures the God of judgment, he doesn't think about it in any negative way or it doesn't lead him to despair. In fact, for Paul, God's judgment or judgment day is actually good news. Uh, for Paul, uh, God's, uh, God, the reason why God judges the world is because, because God loves the world. Let's look what he says here. So he, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, he says, For we know that if the, the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... 
We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our earthly dwelling, if indeed by putting on Putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in the tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we should not be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then he says, for he prepared us for this very thing. It's God who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And then in verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are always away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we know rather to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear, here's the statement, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So here's the image. Paul says that while you are here in your body, you are away from the Lord. But when you die, when you are absent from the body, he says immediately you are in God's presence. And then what happens immediately after, at that moment when you're in God's presence? Well, he talks about the judgment. He says we will all appear before, in verse 10, the judgment seat of Christ, that one may receive what is due for him in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul, uh, this is a clear picture of God's judgment. It's a, it's a very plain picture that God will judge our deeds, good or evil. And what I want you to see here is that this is good news for Paul. The judgment, judgment day, is good news. And I want to give you three reasons why Paul believes that judgment day is not a denial of God's love or bad news for the world, but actually good news for the world and a picture of God's love. The first reason why God's judgment or judgment day is good news is that it brings incredible hope for the world. So notice that when Paul talks about God's judgment, he uses incredibly positive language, very hopeful language. He says, therefore, um, I don't lose heart. And he says, I'm also of great courage when I live my life. I'm boldness and I have courage in the face of difficulty. And he says, I long to be with Christ. Now, why does Paul have great hope? Why does he have courage and why does he want to be with Christ? And the answer is because of the judgment. Judgment fuels Paul's hope. And when you look throughout the Bible, this is always true of the the biblical authors. They always speak of God's wrath or God's judgment of Judgment Day as something that fuels hope. They always speak about it in very positive language. And so in Psalm 96, verse 13, the author says this, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. And so notice the author there, it says the Lord will come to judge and let everybody rejoice because of this. Rejoice because of judgment day. Now why would you ever rejoice at God's wrathful judgment? Well, it's because when we, when, when we look at the world, the world is, that we look at is not the way it's supposed to be. The world that we live in is broken, and there, we, there is injustice in this world. And there, there is a pain and suffering in the world. And there is just plain and simple wrong and atrocities that happen in this world. And when you look at Judgment Day, it is the idea that God will come and right all the wrongs. You see, all of us are born with an innate sense of justice and fairness. 
And the problem is when we look at the world, things are not just and they're not fair. And judgment day is the idea that God will one day make all things right. The gap between the rich and the poor, racism, uh, poverty, the sex trade, the pornography industry. God will one day come and end all of these wrongs because of the judgment. Uh, Cormac McCarthy in his brilliant and terrifying novel, No Country for Old Men, some of you may have seen uh, the, the movie. There's one scene in that, in that book or the film where the, the main character, uh, his name is, uh, he's a sheriff, his name is Ed Tom Bell. And near the end of the story, he muses on the great evil that's been done along the Texas-Mexico uh, border. Uh, he's working with the drug trade and narcotics, narcotics and he's seen all the, the horrible things that have gone on there on the border. And at the very end of the movie, he makes this statement. He's there sitting at his kitchen table, and he says, I think if you were Satan, and you were sitting around trying to think up something that would bring the human race to its knees, what you would probably come up with is narcotics. I wake up sometimes way in the night, and I know as certain as death that there ain't nothing short of the second coming of Christ that will slow this train down. Now, he... Right there, you hear in his voice the longing for judgment day. The world is not the way it should be. But one day, God will come to make all things right. And when you see things this way, God judges the world because he loves the world. He judges the world because he's committed to the world. And Luke Timothy Johnson puts it this way, that God judges the world shows that creation is not a casual affair for God, but rather a passionate commitment. God is so passionately committed to the world that he refuses to shrug off its darkness and wrong. God judges the world because he loves the world. And Becky Pippert put it this way. She says, uh, the opposite of love is not wrath or judgment or anger, The opposite of love is hate, and the final form of hate is indifference. If God hated the world, he'd be indifferent towards the world. But God loves the world, and he's committed to to the world, and therefore he is angry at all the injustice and all the wrong that he sees in the world. And because he is passionately committed to his creation, God one day with wrath will judge all the evil. And so Paul looks forward to this day, this day when God will right all the wrongs. Here's another reason why uh, Paul thinks that Judgment Day is good news, because Judgment Day will end the cycle of violence. He sees Judgment Day as a way to curb retaliation. Now, this is important to see, because a lot of people say, you know, if you believe in a God of judgment, you'll be like Marge, you'll be judgmental. If you believe in a God who smites people and is angry at people, you're going to be a person who smites people and is angry at people. Right? If you believe in a God of wrath and judgment, you might be wrathful and judgmental. But notice, for Paul, his belief in God's judgment here led him to be nonviolent instead of violent. Uh, in, the, in, first Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, this book that Paul is uh, writing uh, this church that he's writing to, uh, Paul is experiencing tremendous injustice. Uh, People, as we read about, are against Paul, 
and Paul has worked so hard to build this church, and he loves them so much, and some people have come in, and they are bad-mouthing Paul, and they're ridiculing him. They're saying he's crazy, he's out of his mind, he doesn't know what he's doing, and this church is believing it, and they're turning on Paul. Now, if I were Paul, I would be angry, and I'd want to retaliate. I'd want to say, don't listen to these people, and where are they so I can go after them? But notice Paul doesn't retaliate here. Why? The answer is because he believes in God's judgment. He believes that one day God will right all the wrongs. That there is a judge. That there is somebody who will enact vengeance on the evildoers, and it's not Paul. And therefore, Paul does not have to go after them. He can stop the cycle of violence. Paul does not have to retaliate because he believes that God one day will judge the evildoers. Now, uh, there's a, a, a Yale theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf. And Miroslav Volf, he grew up in the Balkans uh, where there was ethnic cleansing and uh, uh, just hor horrific violence. And, and Volf's family was a victim of this violence. He said his brother... Uh, his brother's uh, head was crushed by a soldier, and, he's, and his father was put into a concentration camp. And he saw all sorts of horrible things in the Balkans, and he, and he grew up, and he became a theologian, and, and he writes about the violence that he experienced. And he says, you know what? I was so tempted to be sucked into the cycle of violence. They were doing wrong to me and my family. I wanted to do wrong to them and their family. I wanted to get back. And he says, the only reason why I wasn't sucked into that cycle of violence, the only reason why I, I wasn't uh, pulled into to vengeance was because I believe in a God who will judge. And this is what he says. He says, if God were not angry at injustice, that, uh, that God would not be worthy of worship. Notice he says, a, a God who doesn't get angry wouldn't be worthy of worship. And then he says, the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist, uh, insist that God, that judgment is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many, especially with people in the West. To the person's the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest, imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people who, whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a, suburb, a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence responds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die along with many other pleasant captives of the liberal mind. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you, you believe in a God who doesn't judge evil? You believe in a God who would never be wrathful at injustice? Well, then you probably have lived a very comfortable little life. If you grew up like me in the a land soaked in the blood of the innocent, if you grew up and you saw people's daughters uh, being raped by soldiers, then the idea that there is a judge and he will take vengeance on evildoers 
is actually good news. And actually, he says it leads to nonviolence because you believe there is a judge and you are not him. And so uh, to believe in a God of judgment stops the cycle of violence. I don't have to be sucked into that. I don't have to take vengeance because God does that for me. And this is good news. I mean, there, I'm sure there is somebody in this room where right now you are experiencing injustice in your life. Somebody has wronged you. There's been some, some injustice that has been done towards you. And everything in you wants to get back. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go, you know, seek legal recourse and go to the courts. I mean, this is what our justice system is for. But at the end of the day, there are going to be people that get away with injustice. And if you don't believe in a God who one day will right all the wrongs, you will be angry and bitter. And God says, you do not have to take revenge because your God will one day do it for you. He will right all the wrongs with perfect justice and equity. And so judgment is good news, number one, because it gives hope to the world. God will one day right all the wrongs. It's a sign of his love for his creation. Second of all, uh, it's, judgment is good news. God's wrath is good news because it leads to nonviolence. You are not sucked into the cycle of violence because you believe that God will judge and you are not going to do it. He's going to do it in the end. Uh, thirdly, a judgment is good news because it gives life purpose and meaning. Judgment is good news because it gives life purpose and meaning. Now, I want you to see in the passage here, Paul, he's talking about the judgment. And he says, um, he says, one day, he said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is verse 10. So that one day we may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Paul says, because of this, I make it my aim, he says. I make it my aim to be pleasing to God. Now, that's purpose language. He's saying the, the judgment of Jesus Christ, this, this judgment in the end, judgment day, gives me an aim. It gives me a direction. It gives me a purpose. And what is that aim? What is that purpose? He says, because of judgment day, I make it my aim to please him. Judgment Day gives, gives me a purpose in life. It makes it so that everything in my life matters. All of my actions have incredible weight because one day they'll be evaluated at the end, and that gives me a purpose in life. You know, if you believe that nobody's at the bench, if you believe that there is no Judgment Day, there is no Day of Reckoning, there is no evaluation, uh, doesn't that in some ways lead life to lose its meaning? And I want to argue that most of us already believe and, and live, uh, whether we acknowledge it or not, all of us really live uh, like there is a judgment. So Jared Ayers put the, puts it this way. Whether you buy the image of God as judge or not, I want you to notice that you already live like it's true. All of us, regardless of our spiritual beliefs or backgrounds, we all live as if there is some cosmic bench before which we carry out our lives. We all live as if it is objective, that it objectively matters whether we abuse the weak or are kind to the weak. All of us already live as, as if it objectively matters whether we are deceptive or honest, beyond whether we get caught or not. All of us want to live as if it was objectively better to make peace than war. In other words, we already live as if there is a judgment. Because to live in such a way, to live without a bench, without a judgment, causes life to lose its aim and meaning. 
there, there's always some, there's, there's almost something deep within us that, that wants some sort of evaluation, some cosmic evaluation of our lives. My, my little uh, son, I forget which one it was, but this was several years ago. He was learning to, to draw, and uh, he, he was drawing this picture, and it was this horrific picture. It was this stick figure with a little tiny body and a massive head uh, with big teeth and kind of straggly hair and these big, big eyebrows, and, and it was just this hor horrible drawing. And he looked at it, and he said, Daddy, do you like my drawing? And I said, uh, honey, this is a really interesting drawing. Uh, what is it? And he said, it's you, Daddy. <laughs> and do you see my, my son, he was wanting my evaluation. He was wanting my verdict. He wanted his dad to look at what he had done and say, well done, my child. And I, I think in some ways we all long for this. We want to live as if it objectively matters that we work hard in our job. We want to live that it objectively matters that we treat our children well and our spouses well. We want to believe that it objectively matters that we do what is right, even when nobody's looking. We want to believe like it objectively matters whether we do good or evil. We want to believe that there's a bench. Without a bench, life loses its meaning and purpose and aim. Now, there's a, a play called After the Fall written by Arthur Miller. And uh, it's, about, it's an autobiographical play uh, about uh, his affair with Marilyn Monroe and her subsequent suicide. But there's a stunning little uh, monologue in the movie or the play uh, by the main character named Quentin. And he talks about the judgment. And he says, for many years, I looked at life as a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you are young, you prove how brave or how smart you are, then what a good lover you are, and then what a good father. And finally, how wise and powerful. But underlying it all, I see now that there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned or a verdict anyway. I now know, I think now, I think now that my disaster really began, listen to this, when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. Right, without somebody at the bench, without some cosmic verdict, Without a God who who's stands above it all, outside of yourself, you have nothing bigger to live for, nothing that objectively matters outside of your own desires. But Paul says, I believe there's a bench, and there is a judge. There is a law court far above any court in this world evaluating my life. And so what I do matters, every decision Every move I make, every step I take, God is watching me. And for Paul, this gives his life an aim. I make it my aim to please him. And, he, and later on, we read it in verse 15, he says, because one died for all, he says that means that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who raised the dead. He says, I'm living for him. I'm living bef before this bench. I'm living for the judge. 
and it's giving my life purpose and direction. It's giving me a true north. And this is why Judgment Day is good news. Judgment Day is good news. Number one, it gives hope for our world. We have an innate sense of justice. We know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And Judgment Day means that one day God will make all things right. Judgment Day keeps us from the cycle of violence, right? If we don't believe that God's going to judge the evildoers, then we might be tempted to judge evildoers ourselves. And those who have suffered injustice, they they can know that there is a God who sees all and who one day will judge with perfect equity. Number three, Judgment Day gives life purpose. It gives you an aim. It gives you a direction. It gives you a life to live far bigger than your your own self. I'm living to please him. But let me um, make a final point, which is kind of a challenge here, because I know that somebody is out there and they're saying, okay, so Brent, Judgment Day is good news, but you're kind of skirting the issue, which is, you know, I, I remember the story that Jesus told about Judgment Day. And there's some bad news in there. There's some really fearful news in that day. You remember Jesus told the story of uh, everybody lining up before the judgment, the sheep and the goats, and some go into everlasting joy, and he says, others will hear these terrible words, depart from me, I never knew you. What about that? What about that reality? And I have to admit that there is a terrifying reality about Judgment Day. There is a bad news here. There is a warning when it comes to the Judgment Day. And Paul actually gets there. So he says all these things about how encouraging it is and how wonderful it is that God is the judge. But then in verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, wait a minute. Knowing the fear of the Lord. He's acknowledging here that there is something incredibly fearful about Judgment Day that there is something almost terrifying about this idea that there will be a judgment. Because what about us? This is a double-edged sword. Yes, God will, will right all the wrongs, and he will punish those evil people in the world. But what about the evil in us? How do we know that we are going to stand on that day? And what about the reality of hearing the words, depart from me, I never knew you? What about this idea that there will, be, there, there will be people on that day who will go off into everlasting torment? What about hell? Let me say a few words on hell. <laughs> Get ready for this. Buckle your seatbelts. This is honestly really hard for me to talk about, but I, but I feel like I need, I need to say this. Because the Bible does talk about the reality, the terrifying possibility that, that there will be some unhappiness on that day. And, and there will be the, the words spoken, depart from me, I never knew you. And so what do we say about the reality of hell? Well, Jesus talked about hell more than, than anybody else in the Bible. But I want you to see here that hell is, Jesus always spoke about it in metaphorical language. So when you read in the Bible about fire and, and gnashing of teeth, you almost picture like a torture chamber that God has developed uh, and he's sending people there. But when Jesus talked about this fire, this was, metaphorical language. Uh, When he uses the word Gehenna, this was actually a garbage dump in uh, Jerusalem where they would burn garbage. And so hell, you know, I think our picture of hell comes more from Dante's Inferno than it does from the Bible because the Bible always talks about it metaphorically. But you say, oh, yes, it is metaphorical, but what does it stand for? 
I mean, what is, when Jesus talks about gnashing of teeth, I mean, if it's not a torture chamber and it's not, you know, some literal spatial thing, what is it? Well, I think it's, it's, it stands for the, the reality that there is a possibility of saying no to God's love. Uh, there, there is a terrible possibility of, of saying no. And hell, I believe, is that horrible state that someone might live in of saying no to God. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis is, is helpful here because when he talks about hell in this way, he says, when you, when you think about hell, don't just think about something that begins when you die. He said, everybody is living either a heavenly life or a hellish life. Everybody is going down some trajectory. Everybody is going down a path. Everybody is living either saying, uh, my will be done and not thy will be done, or thy will be done and not my will be done. Everybody is going down a hellish trajectory or a heavenly trajectory. And he says this, hell begins with a grumbling mood and always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of send God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell if it is not nipped in the bud. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory to, into infinity. Right? So in other words, there's a trajectory that we are on. Either you're building your identity on money, uh, or, you know, self or something else, and you're kind of moving inwards and you're going in that trajectory, or there's another trajectory where you are saying yes to God and you're moving into a life of joy and peace. And what C.S. Lewis goes on to say is that w- when you think about hell, don't think about it necessarily as God sending people off against their will. You know, we have this picture of God sending people off and they're saying, no, 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 and God said, it's too late, you know, you're gone. But C.S. Lewis says, think about hell as God honoring somebody's free will. If somebody says no to God's presence, God will honor that decision. And Lewis makes this great statement where he says, the door to hell is always locked from the inside. God is honoring your free will. He wants you to say yes to his love, but there is that impossible possibility that people will say no, that people will say, I don't want your love, I don't want your presence, and hell is God honoring that person's freely chosen decision. But notice in this passage, uh, hell, hell is not the last word. Fear is not the last word, because notice what Paul says here. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you, but again, giving you cause to boast about us so that you may also be able to answer those who boast outward in outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He goes on in verse 18, all is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that in Christ God was recon- reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of 
reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, was made, him, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the last word is not judgment, but reconciliation. Paul says, therefore, knowing the danger of saying no to God, knowing the danger of, of living a, a life that is on a trajectory of saying no to God, he says, we persuade people and we, and we compel people to be reconciled to God. And this is what, the way I want to end this morning. You know, God has done a dramatic thing in human history. Through, his, through the, le- the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has sent his son all the way to the limits of God-forsakenness, so as to bring back into the divine life all those who wandered far from it. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into hell for us. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that cry is the judge being judged for us. God doesn't want anybody to say no to him. God has done everything possible to bring us into his love. He's died on the cross and he's, he's suffered judgment on our behalf and he's offered us his righteousness. Him who, has be, him who became sin, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so God goes after you and he doesn't want you to say no. And he tasks all of us with this ministry of reconciliation, begging people, imploring people, listen, God's done everything for you. God wants you to be with him. He wants to give you his righteousness. He wants to make you beautiful. He wants you to say yes. And so God here implores us all this morning, be reconciled. Be reconciled to me. The last word is not judgment, but grace. And it's not just a grace where God says, I'll, I'll let your evil, you know, I'll, I'll look past all the, the, the evil that you do and I will, you know, not judge. God judges evil, but he judges evil on his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes what we deserve so that he might offer us life instead of death. And he begs us to be reconciled. And so this morning, if you're not reconciled to God, a God who is all love, he, he is, God is love. He has taken the judgment for you and he stands with arms wide open saying, be reconciled to me. Come to me so that on that day of judgment you might stand in my righteousness. And if you're here and maybe you've been wronged, maybe you're you're tempted to retaliate and get back at some evil that's been done to you, I want to encourage you that there is a God who will judge evil in this world. He will right all the wrongs. And this is good news. And ultimately, God is a God of love. And his, his, his anger and his wrath is a reflection of his great love for this world. The judgment of God is good news. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, passage that you gave us. Um, it's a challenging passage, and I, I think it speaks to the harder reality of, of uh, the idea that there, that there is evil in this world. And you are a holy God, but, but your holiness is a reflection of your love. You, you judge the world because you love the world. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be reconciled to you. You, you offer us a free gift of righteousness. 
God, you are our advocate on that day of judgment because you took judgment for us. You took all of God's wrath so that we might stand before you fully righteous, fully redeemed. God, that we might escape uh, the punishment for our sins, that we might receive love and forgiveness, that we might stand justly before you a fully righteous. We thank you for that gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.